Uh, four weeks ago, we started on what I thought was a one-night message on faith in the name of Jesus. And now we are in part four. And uh, as it's turned out, we've uh, started going through the book of Acts and seeing what uh, the Bible says about the name of Jesus and the use of the name of Jesus in the early church. But we started off uh, with uh, John chapter 14 and Mark chapter 16, and we want to begin there again tonight. John chapter 14 is Jesus telling his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He's giving them information that none of the other gospels tell us, none of the other gospel writers re- uh, relate this information to us. John was an eyewitness. He was the last of the gospel writers. And so it's almost like he's filling in the blanks on the things that uh, that the church didn't know prior to him writing these things. And so he said that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after Judas had left to, to go and betray him, sell him out, he's uh, talking about certain things. He's talking about how things are going to work in the church age. He's talking about the work of the Holy Ghost and, and uh, so forth. And he said uh, some interesting things, beginning in verse 12. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, we've seen that that means believing on his name, because the name equals Jesus. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, he's obviously talking about something more than just salvation. He's obviously talking about something more than if a person believes on me, and everybody everybody that is saved, everybody that becomes a part of the family of God, has to believe on Jesus from the standpoint of believing in him dying on the cross for our sins. Right? You can't get saved any other way. But he's got to be talking about something more than that. Because he said, if you believe in me, the works that I do shall you do also. Well, certainly not every person that's saved is doing the works of Jesus. So he's got to be talking about something more than just getting saved. Right? Doesn't that seem obvious? He's got to be talking about something more. Well, what does he mean? He said, he that believeth on me, or in my name, believeth on my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do. Now, I know some people in the church get all twisted up about the greater works. I have no idea what the greater works are. If I get to the point where I'm doing the works of Jesus in, in uh, sufficient measure, then I may worry about the greater works and try to figure out what those are. But a lot of times what you hear people in the church world say is, well, we get people saved. Jesus never got anybody saved. Well, that's not true. The Bible says in John chapter 20 that he breathed on the Holy, breathed on his disciples after his resurrection and said, receive the Holy Ghost, and their lives changed. So they got saved. The church didn't start in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Ghost was poured out. The church started in John chapter 20 after Jesus was raised from the dead because he breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Ghost, and they called him Lord. They confessed him as Lord. That's what it takes to get saved. So that can't be right. But the point is, the people that I hear in the church world saying that we're doing greater works by getting people saved, forget that Jesus said we'll do the same works too. See, they tried to use that as a cop-out. They say, well, we're, we're doing greater works. We're getting people saved. Well, Jesus said you'd do the same works, which means signs, wonders, miracles, healings, and so forth. And he said you'd do greater works. So, I'm, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me. If somebody wants to say getting people saved is a greater work, that's fine with me. But Jesus said you'd do the same healing works and so forth and the greater works too. Amen? So he's talking about a better day than he lived in. That's hard for us to comprehend. But that's exactly what he means. He's saying, you'll have the best of what you've seen in me, and it'll be even greater works than that. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's got to be quantity. How do you do greater works in quality than Jesus did? He raised the dead, for goodness sakes. How do you get greater works in quality? I don't see how that's possible. Maybe that's just my limited knowledge or whatever. I, you know, that's okay. I don't know it all, don't claim to. But I can't see, at least from the standpoint that I'm in now, I can't see how you can do any greater quality of works than Jesus did. But I can see with the church growing and spreading around the world, we can do works in a greater quantity or a greater measure. Maybe that's what it means. I don't know. You decide for yourself. 
Anyway, Jesus said, you're going to do the same works. If you believe in his name, you'll do the same works as he did, and even greater works than these shall he do because he goes to his father. In other words, the day of him seated at the right hand of God the Father was better than the day of him walking here on the earth. I think we I think we get so naturally minded about things that we fail to realize what we have. And I think that's one reason, one way the devil tries to trip us up. Because how many Christians have you heard say things like, oh, if we could have just lived when Jesus was here on the earth? Well, Jesus said it's better for you when he's gone. He said it's better for you to live now with him at the right hand of the Father. He said things would be better. He said the supernatural would be in greater manifestation with him at the right hand of the Father than it was when he was here on the earth. Okay, well, if we're going to do the same works, if it comes by believing in his name, we're going to do the same works and even greater works than these because he goes to the Father. How are we going to do those? That's the real question, isn't it? How are we going to do those? Notice verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name. Now, the word ask means to call for or to require. It literally means to demand. Whatever you put a demand on. I use this example every time, but I think it's important because so many times people think that call for, require, or demand has some kind of arrogance to it or it has some kind of bad attitude. But we're talking about the same kind of demand that you put on the banks when you write a check. You've got a contract with the bank. That contract says that you'll deposit money in your checking account and then you can place a demand on that deposit, whatever amount you have in your account, by writing checks or using your debit card, whatever, you know, whatever the the terms of your bank or the however your bank works. Well, you don't have to have a bad attitude to write a check. You're just placing a demand on the money that's yours. That's what this is talking about. That's exactly the example that this is referring to. Some checks, and they don't say it too much nowadays, but it used to say pay to the demand of or pay to the order of. Well, that's what it means. It means you're putting a demand on the contract that you've got with the bank. You've got a contract with God through Jesus. And he's telling you about it. He's telling you what the terms of the contract are. Because you're in Christ, because everything that God has belongs to Jesus and you're a joint heir with him, the Bible says you have a contract with God. And he's explaining how that contract works. In order to do the works, believing in his name and doing the works and the even greater works, because he's going to the Father, here's how you're going to do them. And whatsoever you shall call for or require in my name. The word ask here does not mean request. Sometimes the word does mean request. Jesus talked about it in John 16, 23. And in that day, talking about the day of the church, you shall ask me nothing. That means request. But whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. But notice here he doesn't say that God will do anything. He's talking about placing a demand on his name to do the works of Jesus. He said, whatever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So please notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you place a demand on my name, it's the same as me being there to do it myself. We saw that take place in John in uh, Acts chapter 3. Peter and John go to the beautiful gate of the temple. They heal the crippled guy. Everybody questions what happens here. The, the council comes before them and, and, and says, how are you able to do this? By what power? By what, na- what name have you done these things? And he said, Peter answered and said, it's not by our own power. It's not by our own holiness, which blows the church idea said, it's not something special we've got because we're apostles, but his name through faith in his name has made this man strong. His name has through faith in his name has made this man strong. Yea, the faith which is by him has raised him up. What's he saying? He's saying the name equals Jesus. 
That's what Jesus is saying here in John 14, 13. He's saying the use of his name equals him. When you use his name through faith in his name, when you put a demand on his name to do the works of Jesus, and we're not talking about in prayer. We're not talking about when you pray and ask God, meet my needs. You know, I need $100 to be to pay the bill or I need healing or something like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about to do the work of Jesus, to help set somebody else free. He said, when you place a demand on the name of Jesus, it's the same as Jesus being there to do it himself. He backs up the use of his name as if he was doing it himself. Now, Mark chapter 16. After Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism here is being born into the family of God. It's not talking about water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save you. Water baptism is not a prerequisite to getting saved. Well, what is a prerequisite to getting saved? Believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord. That's all. That's all there is to it. Water baptism is just an outward sign of something that's happened on the inside. And if something hasn't happened on the inside, you could dunk yourself forever and it wouldn't make a difference. Amen? So the baptism he's talking about is being baptized into Christ, being baptized into the family of God, making Jesus the Lord of your life, in other words. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Now notice I ran right through a couple of semicolons and other things. Because in the original text, there is no punctuation. That means the translators put the punctuation in there according to their understanding. Well, if they put the, the, the punctuation in there according to how they understood God, then we've got just as much a right to put the punctuation in there according to our understanding of God. And in a lot of ways, I think we've got greater understanding than they did. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Well, what signs, Jesus? Number one, five things. Number one, they shall cast out devils. Authority over the devil is the first sign he said would be exercised in his name by those that believe. Secondly, he said they'll speak with new tongues. Do you know every time you speak with other tongues, you're speaking as a result of faith in the name of Jesus? You can't get filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues unless you have faith in the name of Jesus. Now, see, some people, the reason I say that is because some people look at faith in the name of Jesus to do healing works or things like that. And they think, oh, dear Lord, how are we ever going to do that? I mean, that must take some kind of real special faith. Well, what kind of special faith did it take for you to speak with new tongues? You pulled that off, didn't you? You didn't have to agonize over that. It may have taken you a while to understand what was involved. It may have taken you a while to understand that it was something God wanted for you. I've seen people struggle with that for years. But once they come to the realization that it belongs to every believer and all they have to do is simply receive it by faith like you do salvation, it's easy. Amen? So we're not talking about some superhuman faith in operation here. We're just talking about simple faith. We're just talking about Bible faith. Third thing he said, they shall take up serpents. Now, this does not mean handle snakes. It means having authority over the devil to lift, lift, literally, take up means to lift off as you would take up an anchor. He's talking about setting people free. Another example of having authority over the devil to set people free. They shall take up serpents. Serpents is a reference to uh, or illustrates the devil and his power. The fourth thing he said, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. Here's divine protection. And the fifth thing that happens, that fifth sign that follows them that believe in the name of Jesus is they shall lay hands on the sick and they, the sick, shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Now, if you're reading along with me in the King James, please notice the word them is in italics. They went forth 
and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. That's not there in the original text. It should literally read, and they went forth preaching everywhere and preached everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word with signs following. See, God confirms his word, not people. Now, God will work with you to the degree that you'll speak the word because he's really confirming his word. So in one sense, he did work with them, but he worked with them only because he confirms his word with signs following. Amen. It's the same way with the use of the name of Jesus. Jesus does not do miraculous works to confirm somebody. He responds in in accordance with the use of his name. Now, turn with me over to Acts chapter 5. As I said, for the last couple of weeks, I've got to be careful because it'd be real easy for me just to go over all the things that we've talked about for the last three weeks. But we've made ourselves, made our way up through chapter 4. Chapter 4 talks about Peter and John at the beautiful gate. We referred to that. The man was healed. They were called before the council. They were threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. They recognized that it wasn't power that Peter and John had in and of themselves. This is so important, folks. Because we think that we've got to have some kind of power to use the name of Jesus. You don't. The power is in the use of the name. And they recognize this. That was their question. We ought to back up in chapter 4 and refresh our memory just on this a little bit. Verse 7, after this man was healed, it says, And they, set, they, the council, set them, Peter and John, in the midst of the group and asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Notice they didn't say, How did you do this? They looked at Peter and John and figured that out pretty quick. These guys are just normal people. They don't have anything. There's nothing special about them. There's not some aura about them. There's not some power radiating from them. So what the question was, what power or what name did you use to do this work? What they saw happen, the miracle healing of the crippled man, is not a normal occurrence. So they know it's got to be something outside of the ordinary that caused this to happen. So they said, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, folks, we're at a disadvantage in the Western world because we don't know anything about using somebody else's name. The Eastern world, even today, knows a lot about that because you don't have to have anything of yourself, but you can use somebody else's name, and it's the same as the other person operating in your place. In other words, you can act as somebody's agent if you have their name. The only way we have any any experience with that whatsoever is something called a power of attorney. Now, if you have some legal issues and things like that, you may have a power of attorney for your parents. For example, as your parents get older, you may have power of attorney so that you can handle some of their affairs. Well, you don't have unlimited power, but in their name, you can take care of some of their financial affairs or to whatever degree the power of attorney extends. Some, uh, sometimes parents, you know, when, when things, uh, they're not able to take care of themselves or whatever, you may have a complete power of attorney. So you can do anything you want to with their belongings or with what belongs to them, with their assets, just simply by using their name. You have their name to use at your disposal. But outside of that, how do we know, what do we know about using somebody else's name? I mean, you may be a, you may be an employee of a company and your position in the company may allow you certain authority to do business on behalf of that company. But even that, your authority is very limited. But in the East, it's a totally different thing. If you've got somebody's name and usually that name is accompanied by a signet or some kind of symbol or some kind of ring or something like that, you get that in the East. And it's identified as to who it belongs to. If it belongs to somebody with great resources, 
All their resources are at your disposal. That's what these guys are asking. By what power or by what name have you done this? And they say it was the name of Jesus that did it. So what happens? They threaten them and command them, uh, verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. They realize Peter and John are not the problem. The problem is this name. We don't care if Peter and John go free, but don't let them use the name. Because if they use this name, the people are going to see that Judaism doesn't have any power anymore. And they called him, verse 18, and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. It's interesting that the devil from the beginning recognized that his problem was the name of Jesus, not the people. His problem is not Christians. His problem is the use of the name of Jesus. You look in the church world nowadays, folks, uh, i, I got to be careful how I say this. It's real easy for me to say, but I want to make sure that I, I say this in the right attitude. Churches that don't preach or teach anything in the name of Jesus other than just you can get saved, they don't have near the trouble that people that preach healing have. When we were in the middle of some of our problems with the lawsuits, I, I've, I've got a good friend, a minister over in, uh, well, the Riverside area, outside of Riverside, and um, and he had uh, some land that the that the state was trying to take away from him and and um, uh, exercise eminent domain and that kind of stuff. And it was his land; it had been his land. It, it, it was just a, the state trying to do wrong. And uh, so he and I were both in the middle of some real serious lawsuits. His had been going on for a long time. He's the only pastor I've ever found that had more lawsuits going against our church than we did. So I really took to this guy, you know. So finally, I'm not the I'm not the worst or the you know the one with the most. And so uh, so he and I were having lunch one day, and he said, Mike, he said, listen, don't let you get this down. Don't let this get you down. He said, the Presbyterians don't have near the trouble we're going to have. And I thought, well, that's certainly true. Presbyterians could put up a church anywhere. Nobody cares if Presbyterians have a church because they'll wind up with a little church with 30, 30 people. They don't need much parking. They don't need any, you know, it's no problem for the city. Everybody's okay with that. You find a church that's really not doing much as far as preaching the name of Jesus, and I'm not criticizing the Presbyterians. I'm not criticizing anybody. What anybody preaches is between them and God. But you find a church that doesn't really hold out the name of Jesus as having anything in the way of power, they sail through stuff. They don't ever have any trouble. Nobody opposes them. What are you going to oppose them about? But you find a church that preaches the name of Jesus. You find a church that says there's power in the name of Jesus to heal the sick, and cast out devils and set people free. That's where the devil wants to stop that. Now, how does he stop them? His attack is not against the people themselves, although he'll take that if that's the way to to mess things up. His attack is against the name of Jesus. And it's so easy when we come under attack, it's so easy for us to think, oh, poor us. This is all against me. Well, no, it's not. It's against the name of Jesus. The people that believe in it are just going to be in the way of the devil. Amen? Amen. So what did they do? They went praying. They went to prayer. They got back with their own group. When they were let go, they went to their own company. And they reported all the chief priests and the elders that said to them. And then they prayed, Lord, grant unto your servants they may speak boldness, that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Verse 30, by stretching forth your hand to heal, and the signs and wonders may be done in the name of the holy child Jesus. In other words, give us more boldness to speak in the name of Jesus. Because just like the devil knows the problem is the name of Jesus, the church knows the answer is the name of Jesus. 
And it talks about power. It talks about supernatural things that take place as a result of that. Now, Acts chapter 5 talks about the use of the name of Jesus in a whole different way. Totally different way. Let's start reading verse 1 of Acts chapter 5. But a certain man, this is after great things happened, great power. The result of their prayer in chapter 4 Verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. It talks about signs and wonders and other things taking place. It talks about people's needs being met. It talks about all kinds of supernatural things happening. Then chapter 5, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? That means before you gave it, wasn't it, didn't it all belong to you? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in your heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Now, folks, I would submit a couple of things to you here for your consideration. If lying to the Holy Ghost was an automatic that people die, You'd have people falling dead in church every week. What's going on here? And why are we talking about this as far as the name of Jesus is concerned? Peter didn't say a word about the name of Jesus. Not a word. You go on and read the rest of the story, which we will before we go much further. Let's read the rest of the story. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. That means he died. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. I guess so. The Bible doesn't say so, but I'm guessing church attendance was down the next week. Sure would be if it happened that way today, wouldn't it? And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was a space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Church has still been going on for three hours. People complain about me preaching long. She didn't know what was done. She came in, and Peter answered uh, unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which are buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then she fell down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Now notice what the result of this was. Verse 11. And great fear came on all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. In so much that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least... The shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. They must have been starting to get healed by shadow. Otherwise, why would they, why would they mention that? In other words, it's saying, and Peter didn't even have to stop and pray for these people. His shadow did the work. Now, folks, show me anywhere in Jesus' ministry where people were healed by shadow. Is this a greater work? It's possible. Verse 16, there came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks uh, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one, every one. Nobody was left out. They were healed every one. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. That means jealousy or envy. 
Folks, this is the problem with religion. It gets jealous of the power in the name of Jesus. That's why it tries to stop this preaching of the name. What has religion got to compare with the power in the name of Jesus? Nothing. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple all to the people all the words of this life. When they heard that, they went to the temple. The next morning, the, the Pharisees send for them, can't find them in the temple, or can't find them in jail, so they find out they're in the temple. It said, uh, verse 26, or verse 25, Then came one and told them the council, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain with the officers, then went the captain with the officers, and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them before them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, obviously, these things are connected to the name of Jesus because that's what the angel told them to go preach. Go preach all the words of this life. So what did they do? They preached and taught in the name of Jesus. Now, folks, again, back to Ananias and Sapphira. The name of Jesus is not used here. So how do we connect that? Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians 5 gives us some information that's, that's, uh, directly connected, I believe, to Acts chapter 5 and is really kind of tough for the church to, to accept. It seems. We'll start in verse 1. It is commonly reported that there is fornication among you and such fornication as so much as, uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. In other words, you, you folks think it's okay. You think it's okay for this guy to be taking his stepmother away from his father. Now, the custom of the day would suggest that the two people are probably close in age that the father has probably remarried a young girl and closer to the, the son's age, and the son looks at her and says, well, we look like we'd make a cute pair. So he takes her for himself. And God doesn't seem to like that too well. And so Paul says, and instead of being, instead of mourning about this, instead of you guys standing up and taking a stand and saying, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is not the way things are supposed to be. You're puffed up about it. In other words, people are taking sides. Some people are saying, oh, I think they're a cute couple. After all, they're close in age. We, uh, this, I'm sure this is okay with God. Apparently not. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. In other words, he's saying your position should be that this guy gets away from here instead of trying to take his father's wife away from him. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present. If you're not going to judge this thing rightly, I will. How does he have the authority to do that? Because he started this church. 
And anything that comes to dare this, tear this church up and destroy the church is an attack against him and the work that God has given him to do. Remember, Jesus said, I have called you and ordained you. I've chosen you that you may bring forth fruit and that your fruit shall remain. This is threatening Paul's remaining fruit. So he says, I'm judged. If you guys won't do it, it's your place to do it. But if you haven't and you won't, I will. I've judged as if I was present concerning him that has done this deed. Well, what are you going to do, Paul? Or what have you done, Paul? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here's the use of the name. Now, folks, I want you to read this. And I want you to tell me where this fell into the the five different signs that Jesus said would follow those that believe in his name. Sign number one was cast out devils. Sign number two, speak with new tongues. Sign number three is take up serpents, meaning lift the power of the devil off of others. Sign number four, if you drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt you. Sign number five, if you lay hands on the sick, the sick will recover. Tell me which one of those this falls into that category. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit, in other words, my spirit will be there with you when you're gathered together. That's a neat trick. I'm not there physically, but my spirit will be there with you. With the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ there? Because they're gathered in his name. For what purpose, Paul? Verse 5. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, folks, please notice that God doesn't destroy people's flesh. Seems like if there's ever a perfect opportunity for God to destroy somebody's flesh, this would be it. But notice for the destruction of the flesh, you have to be turned over to Satan because Satan is the destroyer of the flesh. Satan's the author of sickness. He's the author of disease. He's the destroyer of the flesh. God is not and never is or never will be. So when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit will be there with you for the purpose of turning this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Which of those five signs does this fit? Folks, Mark 16 is not an exhausted list. It's not an exhaustive list of whatever would happen in the name of Jesus. It's just five signs. The name of Jesus goes a lot further than just the five things that, that Jesus said that would happen. He just gives you an overview of what you can expect by believing in his name. But there's a lot more power in the name of Jesus available to the church to do the works of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said in, uh, what is it, Matthew 16, where he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter spoke up and said, well, some people say that you're Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. He said, well, who do you say I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. Well, if flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, who did? But my Father, which is in heaven. And I say unto you, upon this rock... Now, the rock he's talking about is not Peter. Thank God we're not built on Peter. The rock he's talking about is the foundation of the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One translation says the gates of hell shall not hold out against it. So Jesus is in the church building business. This must have something to do with building the church. And folks, all of the works that Jesus said we would do and the greater works have to do with building the church. Whether it's building the church at large, whether it's building the church by helping it set somebody, an individual free, as Jesus did over and over again. He talked to the individual. He set individuals free. But then he dealt with Israel as a whole, too. 
anything relating to the name of Jesus or relating to the work of the church, the building of the church individually or corporately. That's where the use of the name of Jesus comes in. And Jesus said, I'll back you up and, and do whatever you make a demand on or whatever you demand in my name. So Paul says, when you're gathered together, let's read it again. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to, for the purpose of, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, why does God doing that? Because God doesn't like this guy? No. Notice here is the mercy of God in action. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if you guys let this fellow keep going on, continuing in sin, he could lose his salvation. It's the mercy of God for him to get back on track. And folks, some people won't get back on track until their flesh hurts bad enough to where they decide to turn around. So this is not the judgment of God. This is the mercy of God. It may not have a pleasant short-term effect, but it sure has a, a beneficial eternal effect. Now, the end of the story is 2 Corinthians says this guy turns around. Now, it doesn't tell us what that means, but we have to assume that that means he gave his stepmother back to his dad. He left her alone. He got things straight. That's when Paul says, receive him back unto yourselves. Don't let him continue to grieve. He's now made the change. So receive him back unto yourselves like nothing ever happened. So it had a beneficial effect. Can you see that? Turn with me over to Acts chapter 13. Here's Paul's first missionary journey. He and Barnabas start off on their first missionary journey together. And here's one of the first places that they get to. Um, Let's start reading in verse 6. And it says, And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, the Isle of Paphos, in other words. The deputy's name was um, Sergius Paulus, who was a prudent man. That means he was a wise man. He was a man that considered things. Who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamus the sorcerer, that's the Bar-Jesus guy. Elamus the sorcerer, for her, so his name is by interpretation, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. In other words, you've got this advisor. You've got this uh, Sergius Paulus, who's a good guy. He's a good ruler. But he's got this evil advisor. And this advisor wants the deputy to listen to him and not to anybody else. And so he sees Paul and Barnabas as a threat because their doctrine may turn the the deputy away from whatever Elamus wants to tell him and whichever direction Elamus wants to send him. So Elamus withstood him. He tried to get in the way. He tried to keep them from preaching the word of God to Sergius Paulus. Then Saul who is also called Paul, this is verse 9, filled with the Holy Ghost. So this must be something that God prompted him to do. Notice it does not say, then Paul said, I know what I'm going to do to you. I'm glad God doesn't put this power in our hands in, to, to use indiscriminately. If he did, I'm sure I would have overused my part up till now. But Paul, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes upon him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. Notice this is not sickness. He's not blind because he's diseased now. 
There's a mist and a darkness that falls around him that keeps him from seeing. There's nothing that, there's nothing that God did here that caused some kind of physical impairment, but rather it was the hand of the Lord. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. It's temporary. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Where was the name of Jesus used here? Did Paul ever say in the name of Jesus, this is what's going to happen? He did say the hand of the Lord will be upon you. Folks, here's one thing that I think is important for us to see. The result was the deputy believed in the doctrine of the Lord. What does that mean? That means he believed in the name of Jesus. So even though the Bible doesn't just doesn't come out and say somebody said in the name of Jesus, and even sometimes it's not a, a matter of us using the magic phrase in the name of Jesus, like it's some good luck charm or some magic talisman or something like that. It's the doctrine of the power that's in the name, inherent in the name of Jesus. Over and over again, it says they believe the doctrine of the Lord. Well, what is the doctrine of the Lord? That there's power in the name of Jesus. That the name of Jesus is greater than any other name. Now, folks, when you see the name of Jesus being used in situations like this that have a definite, that, that uh, how do I say this, um, that demonstrates that God's power and the power inherent in the name of Jesus is greater than the power of the flesh, how can we not recognize that the power in the name of Jesus is greater than sickness? We haven't talked about healing too much in this, and this is healing school, but can you not see that if the name of Jesus does this kind of stuff, how hard is it for God to heal the sick? How hard is it for us to believe in the name of Jesus for the healing of the sick? Back to Acts chapter 5. I'm running out of time, so I'll close this up. We stopped in verse 28 where the council says, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, what have they done? They've told everybody, they've preached, they've, they've identified, they've taught that the name of Jesus, Jesus gave us his name, and that name is greater than any other name. That name was the reason that the angel de- delivered them from prison and said, go stand in the temple and preach all the words of this life to the people. Well, what words of this life? What does that mean, well, the words of this life? Keep preaching the name of Jesus. The very thing that the council is trying to stop is what the the hand of God, what the Holy Ghost, the angels included, are trying to get them to continue, and that is preach the name of Jesus. Preach the name of Jesus. We'll skip through some of this. Skip with me over to uh, uh, where we want to go. Acts chapter 8. Skip with me over to Acts chapter 8. Verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. What does that mean? Well, it's going to tell us. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. That's going to identify the miracles. Four unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many of them that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. doesn't say everybody, but it says many. And there was great joy in the city, but there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. In other words, he was some kind of con man or magician or some type of sleight of hand guy. 
And he put himself off as some great spiritualist, some great spiritual, you know, somebody or whatever. Now they see real signs and wonders and miracles taking place. That kind of shows up the fake. So this, uh, this Simon, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this is what they said before Philip got there, this man is the great power of God. Now they know otherwise. Now they know Philip is the one that's, that's showing the power of God. And to him they had regard because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But, here's the contrast, but when they believed Philip preaching, now over here it said in verse uh, 5, it said he preached Christ unto them. What did he do? What does that mean? Here's where it's defined. But when they believed Philip preaching, number one, the things concerning the kingdom of God, and number two, the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. How did Philip do signs and wonders and miracles among the people? Because he preached concerning the th- things concerning the kingdom of God and he preached about the name of Jesus. And God still confirms his word with signs following. There's power in the name of Jesus, folks. Just like Jesus said so. Then Simon himself believed also. And he was baptized. This means this guy gets saved. But you know as well as I do that just because somebody gets saved, everything doesn't change immediately. So Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now the apostles, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Notice being saved is called receiving the word of God. They said unto them, Peter and John, who, Peter and John, when they were come down, prayed for them, the ones that got saved, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Philip apparently didn't preach to that. That wasn't the area of ministry that God sent Philip to do. So the, the, Peter and John come down to Samaria, and they get people filled with the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, this is not talking about water baptism. This is talking about salvation. They've been baptized into the body of Christ by making Jesus the Lord of their lives. Not talking about water baptism. Not a word is said about water baptism in this. Then laid they their hands. This is Peter and John laid their their hands on those that were saved. And those who had already been saved previously under Philip received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. What did he see? He's seen signs and wonders and miracles by Philip preaching the name of Jesus. Now when Peter and John come down and lay hands on them to receive the Holy Ghost, we know that that doesn't mean salvation. They've already received the Word of God. They've already gotten saved. They believe. They were baptized into Christ. That's what Jesus said is salvation. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They fit that qualification. So what are they praying for them for? They're praying for them to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. So what did Simon see? He saw something. It's clear that he saw something because Simon saw, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Well, he's sure not going to offer them money if nothing happened. Is he? I mean, this guy's a con man. He knows a con. He saw something. What did he see? Well, what do we see when people get filled with the Holy Ghost? We see him speak with tongues. We see a change occur. We see a supernatural utterance come unto them. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. So something happened, right? 
Clearly, something happened. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou thought that that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You can't buy this. Now, you can see, even though the guy's saved, he got saved by listening to, uh, by uh, hearing and receiving and accepting what Philip preached about Jesus. But just because he's saved, his life hadn't changed that much. He's still thinking of how he can use, what he can use, uh, to get people thinking good things about him. He wants this gift so that people will think good about him, just like we see them thinking good about the apostles, I guess. But Peter cuts that off. He says, you can't buy this. Your money perished with you. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. Notice in verse 21, thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter. You know what this word matter means? It's the word utterance. Speech. He said, you don't have any part in this speech. What speech? When they were all filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2, they began to speak with other tongues. That's what Simon saw. He saw people begin to speak. Peter says, you don't have any part in this utterance, this matter of speech. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What's he saying? You may be saved, but you're still held in bondage to sin. He's not talking about spiritually. If if Simon had died on the spot at that moment, he would have gone to heaven. No question about it because he got saved. He believed Philip preaching Christ, preaching the name of Jesus. He's saved, but the power of sin hadn't been broken over his life yet, has it? And that's what Philip, that's what, uh, what's his name? Peter is addressing. Now, how in the world did Peter and John lay hands on people and then receive the Holy Ghost? They did it in the name of Jesus. That's how it says it worked throughout the whole book of Acts. They would lay hands on them in the name of Jesus and people would be filled with the spirit. And they, the reason we know is because people heard them speak with tongues and prophesy in many cases. That's what he says about this. He says this matter of utterance, what Simon saw was people speaking with other tongues. Now, some people will say they'll take scriptures, they'll take passages like this and they'll say, well, it doesn't say they spoke with tongues. Well, really, the language does. The King James translation doesn't, but the language does. Don't take my word for this. Look this word matter up. Look it up in the Greek. You'll find out that it's translated in other places in the New Testament as utterance. It means speech. Where he says you're, uh, you have no part or lot in this matter, that word is speech or utterance. How did that work? How does that come about? In the name of Jesus. Jesus said these signs will follow them that believe in his name. They'll speak with new tongues. It's a part of the signs that Jesus said follows his name. Folks, the name of Jesus has more power than we, we give it credit for. Now, back to Ananias and, and turning the guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and th- that kind of stuff. Why don't we see things like that happen today? Well, for a couple of reasons. I, my, I'm going to have to give you my opinion on a couple of things. Because I can't prove it by the scripture, but you can't disprove it by the scripture either. So you judge this for yourself. In Acts chapter 5 specifically, the church is in, a, is in a babyhood stage. They've got the apostles doing everything. It's in the next chapter, chapter 6, where they start dividing up some of the work, where they get the deacons involved so that the deacons wait on the tables. Up until that point in time, the apostles are doing everything. The church is at least, at that point in time, the church is at least 8,000 plus people. There were 120 in the upper room. 3,000 got saved on the day of Pentecost. 5,000 got saved as a result of the crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple in Acts chapter 3. That's 8,120 plus those that were added daily to the, to the Lord, uh, such as should be saved. We don't know how many that is. So you've got thousands and thousands of people. The church is huge. 
and it's not like they've got a building to come sit in. So this church is gathering together as they can, but they're meeting from house to house. What kind of church government is going on in this place? It's chaos. It's so funny because we pray, oh, Lord, send revival. And we've got this idea that revival is this nice little neat thing. Revival is chaos. Revival is people coming in and you don't know what to do with them. We've got more people than we know how to handle. How are we going to assimilate all these people? Any church that ex- that has an extended period of, of uh, revival dies. Because you can't handle people. You can't handle an influx that revival brings in continuously. What you have is periods of revival and then times of teaching where people get settled out, people begin to grow, things kind of get packed down. Then a revival will come again and more and more people will be added. This church is undergoing constant revival. What are they going to do with everybody? Peter's doctrine isn't even established yet, and he's in charge. Peter never did finally get to understand the things that Paul taught. Peter wrote in the, in the, in his letter to the church, which was many, many, many years later, toward the end of Peter's life, he said some of the things that our brother Paul teaches are hard to understand. Well, if that was after Peter was 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years old, what is he like now? In Acts chapter 5. What's happening here, folks, is that somebody is trying to take the fast track to put themselves in a position of ministry, an office of ministry that God hasn't called them to, and they're trying to do it by buying their place. And in the early stage of the church, that would have been tragic. So that's why Peter is prompted by the Holy Ghost. Apparently, revelation comes to him about what Ananias and Sapphira are doing with the money in the land that they sold. And think about this. It was a good thing that they sold their land and wanted to give some of it to the church. Where they went wrong is their their intent to lie about it so that they could gain a place in the church. Now, things don't happen so much like that today because the church has government set up. I mean, the church is 2,000 years older than it was at that point in time, and there is more of an established government. Plus, people's attitude about church membership is different today than it is than it was back then. There was only one church you could belong to, and that was the church that was at Jerusalem. That was it. Now, I've never had the Lord deal with me about turning somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Part of the reason for that is, you know, I, I never really know who belongs to me. Because you know as well as I do, if I say something that offends you, you can pick up and take your little toy somewhere else and be gone, and I'll never know it for months. It's a different thing now than it was back then. You made a decision for Jesus back then. Man, everybody knew it. Your family knew it. Everybody knew it. Everybody talked about it. It wasn't a matter of, okay, well, I don't like Josephus' house over here. I'm going to go to Peter's house church over here. That's not the way it worked. It was all one body. It was all one family. Everybody talked back and forth about what was going on. Peter is probably running himself ragged, going from house to house to house, trying to tell people about Jesus. He's trying to multiply himself as much as he can, I'm sure. But right on the other hand, just like just like I've never had anything like that, I'm really not looking forward to somebody dying in church. I mean, that's going to change my preaching schedule, you know. You have to explain things. And then how in the world would you get people not to be afraid to come back to church? It would be a nightmare. Yet the Bible gives us an account of this so that we can see the power in the name of Jesus. We can see God's, the extent to which God will go to protect his people. 
And that's exactly what's taking place here. He's protecting the church. Just like 1 Corinthians 5 is Paul being prompted by the Holy Ghost to protect the church from sin. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. We stopped reading before we got there, but that's what Paul said. Don't you know a little leaven leavens a whole lump? You let this sin go and sin will run rampant in the church and will destroy it. That's what's taking place here. Now, I have had situations where God has dealt with me about praying for people to leave. There have been some times where I've gotten, the, you know, the conflict arises. And, you know, I try not to handle things publicly. I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to, you know, besmirch anybody's uh, reputation. And, and in some cases, if it's just a matter of somebody doesn't like me or my personality or whatever, hey, I understand that. I'm used to that. But if it's some, if it's a spiritual matter, that's a different thing. And so I've had people, I've had situations where I knew there wasn't going to be any resolution. So I prayed about it and said, Lord, I want them to leave. It would be better for them. They're not going to grow. They're not going to learn. They're, then they're going to hinder the church. So it would be better for them to leave. And I've had the Lord ask me, just say right out to me. All you have to do is say the word. You pray them out and they'll go. I've prayed people out. I've had other situations where I've been inclined to pray people out. I've had a situation just like this recently where I was inclined to pray somebody out and I really had a prompting on the inside, don't do it. So I just let things go and let it go and finally it kind of worked itself out and the people wound up leaving but they left on their own terms and I didn't have to pray them out. And the reason that that it worked out, the way that it worked out was really good because them leaving caused some other people that they had offended in the church to come back. And I didn't even know people had left because of them. Well, I love that God's taking care of the church like that. I mean, conflict is not a problem for me. I don't know why. It's just, it's just that way. I don't say that with any kind of pride or arrogance, or, but if there's something that needs to be faced, I don't have a problem with that. We'll just deal with it and go. I don't have a bad attitude. I'm not against anybody. If we need to deal with something, let's deal with it and move on. Whatever is good for you is good for everybody. So, you know, whatever God wants us to do should work for everybody's benefit. I don't have a problem with that but I don't go looking for it. So God will sometimes, by the Holy Ghost, because the church is built on the name of Jesus, God will cause things to work out supernaturally in, 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 in really a, a variety of ways. I know that Brother Hagin told a story about a pastor friend of his that came to him and said, Pastor uh, Brother Hagin, I need to ask you about this. I've never had a situation like this before. He said, I was on my roof repairing some shingles. And he said, all of a sudden, I'm just nailing, nailing uh, shingles, you know, the, the little asphalt shingles down. I'm nailing shingles, and I had a vision. And I had a vision of somebody in my church, one of the deacons in my church, calling a meeting together at another of my church members' homes. And I saw this meeting, and he said, I gathered everybody together so that we can work to get the pastor out of the church. He said, I climbed down from the roof. I'm still in my overalls. I climbed down from the roof, drove over to this, this uh, church member's house, walked into the meeting. And he said, everybody started dropping their jaws and, you know, this kind of stuff. This guy just couldn't, couldn't believe, you know, what are you doing here? Kind of stuff. And the church member whose house it was at said, Pastor, I didn't know what this was about. Please, I'm not involved with this. Well, it exposed the whole thing. It was a supernatural means that God exposed the whole thing. Now here's supernatural revelation. Here's a, a, a gift of, uh, the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom working together, a manifestation of the Holy Ghost that caused the church to recognize that God's not through with the pastor, but it still uses him. Folks, God will protect his church. But let me ask you this. Like I said, this is healing school, and I apologize for going away from the subject of healing, but it's the use of the name of Jesus. We need to know these things. But you need to understand this. 
Does God care more about the church collectively than he cares about the church individually? Does God care more about the church group than he cares about the individual believer? No, he cares about the church group because he cares about every believer. So if God will go to that length to protect the church body, why would he not go to the same length to protect you individually when it comes to healing and, uh, uh, and protection against sickness? Somebody explain to me why, it's, why a bigger group is more important to God than the individual. Jesus didn't come to save everybody. He came to save the individual. A big group comes as a result of individuals getting saved. God cares about you as a person. He cares about you and your, as far as your health is concerned. He cares about you as far as your individual life is concerned. The Bible says, casting the whole of your care on him for he cares for you. That's a little blind to us in the King James because, I mean, it's a good verse. It's a good translation, but literally it means this. God cares about you in the minute details of life. That's what those words really mean in the, in the, the Greek. Cast the whole of your care on him because God will meddle in the smallest details of your life. That's what that word means in the Greek, that, that verse. Because God cares about the smallest details of your life. We think we can handle the small details. God, you just take care of the big stuff. Well, can you really handle the small details? I found anything I think I can handle without God's help, I make a mess up. I want God involved in everything. And the more I learn to cast my cares over on him, the more I learn to walk in faith according to his word, the more I learn to accept his word as done. That's the more I see God working in the details to our advantage. I said this this morning. If you were here this morning, um, you, you, you may remember me saying it. But it really fits here. In Romans chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, God quickens the dead and calls things that be not as though they are. God's not giving new word. He's not calling new things that be not as though they are. That means his word is already spoken. That means his word concerning healing is already spoken. It's done. It's forever settled in heaven. It's just a matter of us accepting it to be true. And standing expectantly, aggressively and expectantly for it to be completed in our lives. Not passive, not leaning back saying, well, someday in God's good time it's going to happen. Nope. God's good time was when he said it. God's good time was when he sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world and Jesus to die, take stripes upon his back for our healing, to affect our healing. That was God's time. That means it's already been affected so that we can aggressively demand in the name of Jesus. We're not demanding of God. We're demanding that sickness bow to the name. That's what the disciples did in the early church. You know one thing you'll never find? You can't go in the book of Acts and find that they ever prayed for anybody's healing. Never. Not once. Never did the early church pray for somebody's healing. They ministered healing. But just like in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John said, Such as I have, give I thee. They did not pray, God heal this crippled man. They said, In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Acts chapter 9, Peter comes to another crippled man and said, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. In other words, you were healed by the stripes of Jesus. He's ministering healing to them. He's not praying for healing. He's ministering to healing. He's ministering healing to the sick. And that's what Jesus said. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They'll lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. He didn't say they'd pray for healing. He said they'd lay hands on the sick and the sick would recover. There's more power in the name of Jesus than we think. There's more power in the name of Jesus than we've utilized. And we, knowing it or not, 
ignorantly, maybe well-intentioned or whatever, we have diminished the name of Jesus by asking God to do things in his name. When Jesus said, use it. Don't pray about it. Don't ask God about it. Use it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to live in the name of Jesus. That name belongs to us, Lord. You gave us that name for the express purpose of using it. And Lord Jesus, you said that whatever we call for required in your name, you would do it. That the Father might be glorified in the Son. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Who needs hands laid on you to receive your healing tonight? Stand up. I didn't say come up. I said stand up. Go back where you were. I appreciate your zeal. Now, who did the Bible say these signs would follow? Pastors, apostles, other ministry gifts, no believers. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. If there are any believers around the people that are standing, I want you to gather up two or three around them, if you will, please. And lay your hands on their shoulders or touch them in some way. Anybody not have somebody laying hands on them? Several people at least. All right, I want you to do this. Do Please do not pray. If you pray, you're going to mess everything up. Jesus didn't say these signs would follow them to believe. They would pray. It's not what it says. He said they would lay hands on the sick and they would recover. Are you laying hands on the sick? Those of you that need hands laid on you, is somebody laying their hands on you? Okay, we've got half of it done then, right? Say this, everybody that's gathered around the, those who have hands laid on them, say this, in the name of Jesus, we command sickness to leave this body. In the name of Jesus, we place a demand on healing. In Jesus' name, we count it done now. Amen. Is it done? Jesus said, these signs would follow them that believe in my name. They lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Furthermore, Jesus said, whatever you call for or require in my name, I will do it. Did we make a demand on the name of Jesus? Then is he, if, if he's good to his word, unless he lied to us, is something now taking place? That's the key, folks. Something is now taking place. From this point forward, those of you that had hands laid on you, from this point forward, say, something is taking place because I've got Jesus' word on it. It's just that simple. The name of Jesus is driving out sickness because I've got Jesus' name, or Jesus' word for it. Uh, if he didn't lie, he said, whatever, whatsoever you call for or require in my name, I'll do it. Now, unless he lied, and if he did, we're sunk. We might as well just use our Bibles for firewood. If he didn't lie, 
then something is happening now. As far as we're concerned, it's done. Amen? Let's lift our hands and thank God because it's done. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that the name of Jesus drives out every sickness and every disease, whether it's a minor thing, something as minor as a headache, or something as, as serious as paralysis. Thank you, Father, that the name of Jesus is working to affect a healing and a cure in every person in Jesus' name. 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 One last question for you. Anybody feel anything? I didn't feel anything. Did you feel anything? Well, shoot. You know what that means? That means the only thing we've got is God's word on it. Is that good news or bad news? That's the best news you can have. Because we've got God's word on it. Our feelings could lie to us. If we're operating on a feeling, boy, if we had some kind of feeling or electric charge that went through the room when we prayed or when we spoke the words, that'd be something we could say, whoa, we had a goosebump. But we didn't have a goosebump. All we've got is God's word. Think that's enough? Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never fail. We've got the most sure thing in the universe to rely on. Say it with me. Thank God for healing in the name of Jesus. It's done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.